I do want to encourage you, church, to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 is where we continue. As I said earlier, I'm very thankful for Aaron Bishop stepping in in my stead last Sunday. Uh, It is no big deal who a, a pastor shares his pulpit with. Excuse me, I did not mean to say it that way. It is a big deal. It is a big deal who a pastor shares his pulpit with, and there are those that would make it out to be no big deal. And so I did not do that lightly, and Aaron did not take it lightly. He did a fantastic job of leading us through those first five verses of Romans chapter 2. As we make our way now to verse 6 there, um, we'll see that uh, what we do with the treasure of the gospel is not inconsequential. There is a responsibility that comes with being those who are bearers of the light of the gospel. And we must aggressively combat the temptation to thinking that our life in Christ can be approached in a mundane manner. There is a weight of eternity that hangs on the produce of our hearts. A weight of eternity that hangs on the produce of our hearts. And our verses this morning make that abundantly clear for us. If you go to just about any courthouse here in America, you'll see a statue, whether on top of the courthouse or maybe it's engraved somewhere on the courthouse or somewhere, you will see statue of Lady Justice. I tried to find a picture. Apparently, all the pictures of Lady Justice are, all the statues of Lady Justice are slightly inappropriate in my terms. And so uh, I could not present to you a picture of Lady Justice. Nonetheless, what I want you to take note of and know about Lady Justice when you see a statue of a Lady Justice on top of a courthouse or what have you, maybe you've never looked before, but she's always holding a sword and she's always out holding out a scale, a set of scales. And those are the scales of justice. Now, what many people don't take note of about Lady Justice is also what she is wearing, and that is a blindfold around her eyes, and that Lady Justice is blind. And so what weighs out on those scales is not determined by what Lady Justice decides or what she wants or by anybody else's weights, but what weighs out on the scales of justice is what is true, is the idea there. It's the symbolism of Lady Justice. And I want you to keep that image in mind as we move through our text this morning and we continue the idea that was begun in the first five verses as Paul's been addressing specifically in this section the Jews and their mishandling of the word, their mishandling and their misunderstanding of the law and thinking that it made them the judge of anyone. But as Aaron exposited for us last week, that indeed they stand under the judgment, as all people do. Well, that idea is continued today, and it is brought forth even more as Paul continues that argument. And the overarching question that I want to be on your minds and on all of our minds and that we will get to at the end of this morning's sermon is, what are you waiting for? That might not make sense now, but it hopefully will at the end of this sermon. What are you waiting for? Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word as we'll read our text here in just a second. Pray that you bless this time, focus our minds sharply, rid us of any distractions, of any anxieties, worries, doubts, and I pray that your spirit would speak through your word and effect change in our hearts, that we may not be just hearers, but doers. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Church, I'll invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read our text for this morning, which again comes from Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of God. You may be seated, church. So, our text for today is very much an answer of the realities revealed in verse 5. As Again, I said Aaron wonderfully exposited for us last Sunday. So, between verses 5 and 6, there are two truths which inform our reading of verses 7 through 11. Two elementary truths of God's revealed wrath and judgment. Let's read verse 5 just to refresh our memories again. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We saw several verses earlier as we looked in chapter 1 that the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But now we are told that not only has God's wrath been revealed in the present, but there is still a stored up coming wrath that is coming on a day of righteous judgment that is yet to be revealed. We're also told there in verse 5 who this wrath is stored up for. And he's talking specifically to the Jews who by their self-righteousness have appointed themselves as some sort of pseudo-judge over everyone else to say that because they have been born at a certain time and place that they somehow have special privilege over those who practice sin when they themselves live against God's law. And I want to, as we talk about these two truths, the first one that's revealed here is that God's revealed wrath is stored up against the unrepentant. That's what we see there in verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. As we read in verse 5, it is precisely because of the unrepentant nature of the loss that God's wrath is stored up. But consider the grace of that statement. That God withholds his wrath by storing it up. And yet, the unrepentant remains steadfast in their lusts of the heart, even though he's made himself known clearly to be perceived in all creation. But those who deny that reality are storing up for themselves wrath on the day of just judgment. This ought to move those of us who know Christ and the sweetness of the gospel to a constant state of repentance and awe of His grace. The second fundamental truth is given to us here in our text for today, starting in verse 6. Now, we're going to spend the majority, a good majority of our time here in verse 6 this morning because it is verse 6 which informs our reading of verses 7 through 11. Without a thorough understanding of verse 6, we cannot rightly understand what we read in verses 7 through 11. And we see the second fundamental truth given to us here in verse 6. So let's read it again. He will render to each one according to his works. There are three truths revealed here. I know I told you I was giving you two truths, but these are the the sub-point truths to the the overarching truth that we see there in verse 6. And now you're saying, I can see why you're going to spend so much time on verse 6, right? So there's three truths revealed here which are expounded upon throughout our portion of text today. Those three truths make up the structure of the rest of verses 7 through 11. 
So that verses 7 through 11 are an exposition of these three truths in verse 6. So verse 6 gives us the principle upon which the remainder verses expound. And that principle highlights these three truths revealed throughout Scripture. God will repay or reward or render. So, in other words, there is no escaping reality of God's final tally of all things. And that that repayment or that rendering is coming. All must face judgment. That is to say that God's just judgment is sure. God's just judgment is sure. There is no avoiding it. But who, who will be judged in this just judgment? Who will receive this rendering? Each one. So, there is no partiality in God's judgment of mankind. All must face judgment. This point alone will go on to be repeated two more times in this morning's text. The reality of the totality of God's judgment. A clear emphasis that this is the main point of this section of Paul's argument. God's impartiality in his judgment of evil. Showing us the grand universal nature of this judgment and simultaneously the individual implications of this coming judgment. So this, it, this judgment is both universal in scope, each one, and individual in application, each one. You see that? It's both universal and focused, individual. Why is that important to understand? Because you don't avoid judgment based off of your nationality. This statement here is specifically pointed to the nation of the Jews. You don't avoid judgment strictly based off nationality. Each one will be judged according to his works. So in other words, for us as modern Christians, bowing to the stars and stripes does not equal eternity in heaven. Judgment is not avoided by making sure one is aligned or not aligned with, take it even further, the SBC or the SBTC, non-denominational, or any other acronym you like. As we shall see, what matters is if you have bowed to Jesus Christ. This might be a reason among many that the modern church does not talk of judgment of God. Because it's hard to argue national, race, gender, denominational, or political superiority when you're talking about the impartial judgment of God. It's also hard to talk of being affirming and accepting of all manner of sin when you're talking about the impartial just judgment of a just and holy God. That doesn't tend to draw as big of a crowd. But by what standard will we be judged? That's the third sub-truth that's, that's revealed here in the statement. So, he will render, he will render to each one, and he will render to each one according to his works. God judges everyone according to their works. It's the first point revealed on your outline this morning. Now, this brings with it many follow-up questions in which we're going to get to. God's righteous standards do not change, though, is what I want us to see in this reality. There is a long-standing history from the Old Testament that affirm this very truth. Paul here is presenting his argument directed specifically at the Jewish audience, after all. So he quotes here directly from where? The Old Testament scriptures. So this is not just simply a nice statement which Paul crafted. This is a direct quoting. To render to each one according to his works is a truth that has been revealed throughout all of scripture. And so in making this argument, what does he point 
the Jewish audience to the Scriptures. We read this in Psalm 62, verse 12. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. We read this in Proverbs 24, 12. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Jeremiah 17.10. We all know 17.9, that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all else. But 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The work we stand by or the works we stand by, are the works we live or we die by. That is an overarching reality that we see here throughout the Old Testament. So how do we reconcile what we're reading here with the truth that we are saved by faith alone? Paul himself has, has made that the thesis statement for Romans. Going back to verse 17 of chapter 1. A distinction needs to be made here. Notice this entire text is speaking about judgment based off of works. Judgment based off of works. Not salvation. We have a long-standing history of God's judgment of works. What we do not have is a long-standing history of salvation based off of works. So what we need to see is that there is a defining truth which helps us to decipher everything that we read here in the preceding verses. And that is, either we stand by our own works of unrighteousness, or we stand as righteous under the work of Christ on the cross. And then from that flow our own works done in righteousness, a righteousness that is not of our own. So that anything good in or from me is not owed to who? Me. But is totally owed to the one who saved me and called me according to his good purposes. Do you see that? Because it's one thing to say, well, I, I do good things. How can you say I won't go to heaven? You may indeed do some good deeds which are slightly morally good. But where is that flowing from? Because I made that statement just a little while ago that, that what we have is a longstanding history uh, uh, from salvation history, from the scriptures of God's judgment of works, not a salvation of works. Many misunderstand what we see of salvation in the Old Testament. Where do our good deeds come from? Back to that hypothetical person who says, well, I, I do good things, so why would you say I, I, I won't go to heaven? Where are those good deeds done and were those good deeds done simply for the purpose of honoring your Creator? Or were they done from a desire to feel better about yourself, from a selfish motive? So either we stand by our own works of unrighteousness or we stand as righteous under the work of Christ on the cross. Now, I need to show you that even more so from Scripture from the scriptures. Otherwise, it's just a religious verbiage that sounds good, but has just been twisted to fit my own agenda, right? So I want us to look even further. Turn to James chapter 2, because here we have a text which is often, again, another one been misrepresented. And I hope to clarify that and for us to see 
how Paul and James are making the same argument here in Romans 2 and James 2. James chapter 2. Let, let's start in the text that is often misrepresented. Verse 24 is often taken in isolation. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, that would certainly seem to be in contradiction of what Paul is saying, right? And sure, if we take that verse by itself, it might cause us to come to that conclusion. But again, what I want us to see is the full argument which James is building and how that full argument is really the exact same argument that Paul is making here in Romans 2. So back up to James chapter 2, verse 20. And this really is all in the context of what James says earlier in verse 1, which is, be doers of the law and not just hearers. What was our verse for the month from Romans 2, verse 13? Be doers. All right, so let's, let's, let's continue. Verse 20 here of James 2. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So let's pause right there. Abraham's faith was shown and borne out in his offering up of the promised son Isaac. And so what James, the argument by appealing to Abraham, and specifically uh, Genesis 15 is one area which uh, he appeals to. We also see the instance with Isaac, and I believe it's Genesis 20 or, or 22. Um, but nonetheless, in appealing to Abraham's offering up of Isaac, James is making the case that the true faith that was in Abraham showed itself out in his offering of Isaac. So that if he resists to offer Isaac, then what was never in him? True faith. That's the argument that is being made. And we continue to see that. You go to verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in even the very preceding verse, verse 23, that precedes the verse that's often isolated and taken as contradictory, even that one quotes from Genesis 15, 6, which says, Abraham believed God, that's faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness and then we go to verse 24 you see so even the you see is like so you see how this works together is what is what James is saying that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone so his statement is that the faith which is in him bears out its fruit in works it cannot do anything else that if there's true faith in them in him, then works, good works done through that faith will be done. You cannot have one without the other. He's not saying it's achieved separately. That is not the argument. So here's what I want to show. That there is no contradiction. Nowhere does James say that salvation is by works alone. That would be the true contradiction. If James were to say that man is saved by works alone, that's the true contradiction. The Jews claimed to have all the works. But when it came down to that showing itself out and loving one another's neighbor and loving one another, taking care of the poor, they failed. Which is, of course, what? The very question and context which James provides for his argument. James's argument if you look back at verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You back up even further in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So in other words, is that faith genuine if it's not showing itself out in works? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is not a true faith. It's dead. So James's argument is that a genuine faith which saves will produce works of righteousness. So if you have one, you have to have the other. So if we are not seeing the fruit of those works, then what is the judgment we must come to? If we don't see those fruits of genuine faith coming forth from our own life or the life of a brother or the life of a sister, what, does the judgment, what is the natural judgment we must come to? That genuine faith, which results in heart change, is not there. So in this, the arguments of James and Paul go hand in hand with one another. Only works which flow from faith in Christ can be deemed good. I, I point us back again to the giving of the law. In the giving of the law, the law could only be kept from what? A heart that had been circumcised. Abraham could only offer Isaac faithfully and obediently if what? His heart had been completely changed and it was rendered to him as righteousness. We look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So the Lord will completely change, give you a new heart, perform heart surgery so that you could even be able to love God with all your heart and soul that you may live. You go back even further to Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? So this is at the beginning of Moses' address to the the people on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What would we call those? Good works. Works of obedience. Verse 13. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens and the earth and all that is within it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. This is and always has been the call of God's word. So we need new hearts in order to walk according to his good works. The keeping of the law was not what saved you. The circumcision of the heart is what saved you. And from that heart comes the good works of the law. Paul has already made plain in his thesis statement, transitioning back now to Romans. Paul has already made this plain in his thesis statement in chapter 1. Verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we're seeing this same language of impartiality that we're seeing here in the judgment. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by Here we see that righteousness comes from faith. So we are clearly not talking here about the scales of justice being weighed out for salvation back here in Romans 2. 
For all the works of man have already been weighed out as evil. That was the whole point of the second half of Romans 1. And building into this argument is that all the works of all mankind have all been weighed out and already judged as evil. So it is the unrepentant, therefore, who are storing up wrath for themselves. So how does one come to be able to do good works? Again, you need a circumcised heart. You need a new heart. How do we get that? By believing in the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It is only when we are found in Christ, not having a false righteousness of our own, that we can find a true righteousness by faith in Christ. And Paul provides a litmus test. Remember a litmus test from science class? Kind of stick the little piece of paper in water. You can tell how acidic or base or alkaline or whatever, you know, you can tell it by what is on the paper. I could not break that down for you right now. I'll just remember it, right? So, but Paul provides here a litmus test for those wanting to know the genuineness of their faith. Have I been found in Christ not having a righteousness which comes from myself? Well, Let's read verses 7 through 11. We start with verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So we'll pause right there. Because what we have in verses 7 through 11 is a, a poetic structure I've talked about this structure a few times before, definitely on Wednesday nights and uh, a few other sermons, but a chiastic structure is what this is called, right? Chi being the Greek letter for X. So it, it, what we have here is verses 7 and 10 address what? Those who are persevering in well-doing. Verses 8 and 9 in the middle, sandwiched in the middle, address what? Those who are persisting in evil. So the unrepentant, right? So 7 10, and you have 8 and 9 in the middle, right? So that's the, the structure that forms. So here in verse 7, we begin to see the dichotomy of works that exist because of Christ. Before Christ, we stand only in our own works, dead, condemned, and with no hope. In Christ, there now exist two peoples, those of grace and those of the world. Now, what is this? By patience in well-doing. Well, what was it that Paul said his own giftedness was for? Back in chapter 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So an obedience which comes from faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations. See, the true fruit of salvation is ripened by endurance and faithful obedience. I want to break that down. True fruit of salvation. So the fruit that we were talking about there in James was produced by true faith in our hearts. It's ripened, it's brought about by endurance in faithful obedience. That's what Paul is saying here. To those who, by patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So we see this ripening also in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. To whatever acts or works or things that you are doing, May they be called good for God's glory. This also answers the question of, what do you mean by seeking for glory? Whose glory are they seeking for? It's, it's God's, and we'll, we'll continue to see that. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So there we have the same language of glory and eternality that Paul brings out in Romans. He's also preaching to the Corinthians. 
We see this in Colossians 3, 4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's verse 3. And then verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So where does the obedience of faith come from? We look to Luke chapter 8. You can turn your Bible there. Or it'll be on the screen. But Luke 8. What do we see? The parable of the sower. Luke 8, verse 4. The parable of the sower. And Jesus goes on to, in verse 11, give an example or explanation of this parable to his disciples. And the parable is this. Of course, this parable, the seed has been cast out, some on good soil, rocky soil, uh, dry soil, so on and so forth. Now the parable is this, Luke eight eleven. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The detail to also note there is that the soil is prepped for the word to be implanted. You see... What I want us to understand is God's word tends the soil of our hearts and is the seed which bears the fruit of good works. Only a soil which is prepared rightly can bear forth fruit. So by staying in the truth, we keep the soil rich. So there are three characteristics there in verse 7 of good enduring fruit. Seek for honor, glory, Again, whose honor, whose glory? We already answered from Corinthians that it's God's, but we'll clearly see that as we move to verses 8 through 9. So seek for honor, glory, and immortality. Again, the purpose of the immortality is for eternity to give the honor and glory to God. This is why all of this is crucial for the Christian. There is a weight of eternity that hangs in the balance of these scales. So daddies... All fathers, I want you to listen. Do you feel that weight for your children? Does that throw you to your knees constantly in prayer for them, bearing with them in their weaknesses? Or does it move you to anger and rage and provoking them to anger? Husbands, do you feel this weight of eternity for your wives? Are you leading the household toward works of righteousness which are produced from hearts that have been made new? Or are you simply living blind to these eternal realities, not seeing the weight that is there? Wives and moms, how are you serving your households in this? Children, how are you submitting to the Lord in all respects by showing respect to your parents? Parents, don't you dare think that because I've challenged the kids, that negates the challenge that I just levied to you. Those who have children that are all grown up, maybe spouses that have passed, how are you serving these eternal realities within our church? Or are you merely seeking to be served by our church? Things get really uncomfortable when we start talking about the impartial judgment. And if you're squirming in your seat, you should be, as I was squirming whenever I was preparing this. The eternal weight that hangs in the balance here. Because we move on to our description in verses 8 and 9 of the evil. But for those who are 
self-seeking. So that in itself already, again, informs who the glory and the honor is sought for in verse 7. So if there was any confusion in that, there you go. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. I'm unashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also the Greek. But there is also impartial judgment that comes with the impartial grace. That's the balance of the scales. I want to highlight in those verses two characteristics of the fruit of the flesh. This is that litmus test. So we've seen what are characteristics of those who are persisting, enduring, and well-doing. And now we see two characteristics of those who are persisting in the flesh. They are self-seeking. Again, as I said, this gives greater context to what was said before in terms of the glory and honor. But what we need to know is that a well-tended heart bears fruit for God's glory. So the self-seeking, if there's anything self-seeking within us, we need to pull it out at the root, which means we need to consistently tend the garden because the flesh is consistently self-seeking. So the garden must always be tended. And they also do not obey the truth. So they're self-seeking and they do not obey the truth. I want to point you to John chapter 3. This, of course, the famous interaction of Jesus and Nicodemus. At nighttime, of course, because Nicodemus, a Pharisee, I just went over this with my New Testament class earlier this week. The Nicodemus, a Pharisee, coming to Jesus by cover of darkness, seeking to figure out what part of the law he must have missed because he's acknowledging the authority that Jesus has, but isn't ready to submit to that authority. And Jesus says in John 3, starting in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, verse 17, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see the same scales, the same weight of eternal justice weighed out in Romans 2 right here in Jesus' words in John 3. We continue reading, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So again, what is carried out in and of ourselves in the flesh has already been weighed out and judged as evil. But whoever remains in the light and believes in the light, his works have been carried out in God. Nicodemus did not want to submit to the truth. Eventually, he was forced to see his sin fixed on the cross, as we then go on to see Nicodemus at the burial of Jesus. But we pick back up in Romans chapter 2. We have those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness, so they obey what's natural to the flesh and what awaits them. So we've rendered to those in verse 7 
who seek for glory and honor and immortality and by patience, endurance, and well-doing, right, to them is rendered and paid out eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So there's an impartiality in the payment. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. So in other words, the rotten fruit of the flesh will be exposed. It will be exposed. That's the light, the exposing light that Jesus talked about in John 3. And we go on to close out the chiastic structure there in verse 10. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So in other words, the reward only goes to those who endure in doing good. And we can only endure in doing good if we are found in Christ. And then, of course, what is quite possibly the most intimidating verse of all of these, Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. So everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God and either be judged according to the work of Christ on the cross and therefore the works that come from that faith in Christ on the cross or be judged in the works of our flesh. That is the impending reality for all. And so the question I circle back to is, what are you waiting for? If we really see the eternal weight of glory that is laid out here, then we must realize that there are no insignificant pursuits in this life. And so when you see, what are you waiting for? I put it on your outline for you to write, what am I waiting for. I want that to be a, a very uh, a point that, that strikes home. Again, we're talking about the all-encompassing nature of this and the individu individuality reality. There are no insignificant pursuits in this life. What do I mean by that? We are all eagerly and ferociously pursuing a life that is self-honoring and by our own works or we are ferociously pursuing a life that is lived under the works of Christ and therefore producing the works of good for His glory among the nations. What are you waiting for? What works are you piddling in? Your own or are you ferociously pursuing the life lived under the works of Christ on the cross and therefore producing works that are consistent with that and giving His glory among the nations. I want to just read for you a few testaments of brothers and sisters that are ferociously enduring in these things. Our brothers Aaron our brother and sister Aaron and Hannah Mason. Hannah, who's had multiple health issues that have caused for some very hard days. Aaron, who is, as we speak, recovering from a bleeding lesion in his GI tract. And you know what they're doing? They're making their way back home in rural East Africa to continue to endure in producing works consistent with the righteousness that has been laid on their hearts according to the work of Christ. Tyler and Ashley Martin, Lance and Brianna Anding, moving thousands of miles away. These are our, our partners in, uh, at, at Outfitter Church in Wyoming. Moving thousands of miles away from family and friends and loved ones to go out west and plant a church in one of the most unchurched regions in the country. Pastor Julio of La Familia Ingracia, our church partner in Peru. I just wish that all of us had the passion for the gospel and the love for one another that my brother Julio has. Who saw, who got 
had his church kicked out of two locations within two weeks, and then coming home to see the need and realizing the need, turned his own house into a church, a sanctuary for the church, rather. I want to raise up more Tyler's and Ashley's in this church. I want to raise up more Lance and Bree's, Aaron and Hannah's. I also want us to be a church full of Julio's. I want us to feel the tension of desiring for your family to stay here because of my love for you, but simultaneously knowing that God is calling you to go plant a church or move overseas. I want that. Why? Because that's how we endure as a church, as a people. We endure in well-doing by seeking the glory and honor and the praise of God among the nations. For the non-believer, the doubter, the skeptic, the antagonist, your works done in the darkness of your lustful heart will be judged and you will be rendered unto justice. So repent and believe in the gospel that you may be saved and be made new. For the believer, your deeds of darkness have already been judged at the cross of Christ. So why do you waste time with trivial pursuits when the eternal weight of justice and glory hangs in the balance? Be about the Father's work. Endure in good things, church. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you for your word. We praise you for the work of Christ on the cross, which has given us the ability to be made righteous according to your working in us. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to see that you have lifted the weight of condemnation on us in Christ and therefore you have set us free from the law of sin and death that we might endure in doing good works for your kingdom. So God, give us endurance. Give us strength. Give us confidence and boldness according to you and your word and your works. God, I pray for those who do not know you, that you would help them to see that there are no mundane pursuits in this life, but that they are aggressively pursuing works for which there is stored up wrath against them and that you would draw them unto yourself and bring them to salvation. Help us to be about your work, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.